We are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are looking at the apostasy and the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're moving verse by verse through both of these letters, First and 2 Thessalonians. We've come to chapter 2, so we're kind of on, in the home stretch here. Not a lot of verses in this particular letter, but chapter 2 uh, is pretty full, 17 verses, and we will not do the chapter in one message. This is going to be at least a couple of messages and the first five verses is the focus this morning. Once you have your Bible open or your device, why don't you stand to your feet if you're able to, and let's read the text together. I'm going to read a little bit past what we'll deal with today. Now, 2 Thessalonians 2.1. We request, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That you may not be quickly shaken, verse 2, from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, part of our title today, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, seven is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a very <laughs> intriguing and not so easy passage to really ultimately understand or even break down or exegete. And yet it is a passage of utmost importance to our understanding of what we call eschatology or the last things or the last days. And Paul has given us no less than two markers that will precede the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And these are incredibly important because if they're going to precede the coming of Jesus, we need to know what they are. We need to understand what you are saying to us through your living word. And we want to be a prepared people for a prepared place. Thank you that you've gone to prepare a place for us, that we have hope that we don't grieve like those who have no hope, that the second coming of Jesus Christ means our champion is coming, that this broken world will ultimately be restored and you will bring peace and reverse the curse. And we're so grateful to have that future to be ours, to be co-heirs with Christ. And we pray that you would help us to discern what you would say to us, give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church in these moments, these days. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed Brad Dacus last week. I 
got a chance to tune in. I was in Temecula doing a wedding and got to watch the live stream. Uh, it was awesome to hear Brad not only teach, but share his testimony. And I was taken aback. I think I may have heard this before, but by the accident that Brad went through and how really they left him no hope and how he is now such a strong advocate of the Christian faith, such an intellectually strong guy, uh, an attorney. He's done so much good for the church. And so I hope you enjoyed that last week. By the way, if you are interested in more information about voting, one of the easy ways is to go to the app, scroll down to the Salt and Light logo, click on it, and you'll have access to a voter guide directly from the app. So if you haven't accessed that and you're wondering about, you know, how do I keep up with the propositions and all of that, that's one way to do that, and that's available to you. But here we are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're looking at the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Over a quarter of 1 Thessalonians and nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deals with problems and issues regarding what we call the parousia, or the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. 2 Thessalonians 2 probably represents the main purpose of this second letter. So this, you could say, is the meat, the substance of where Paul is wanting to head in terms of us understanding the day of the Lord. There's always been sensationalism around the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's always been date setters. There's always been apocalyptic type of movements and uh, things around that. And what we need to understand is what does the Bible actually say about the second coming of the Lord Jesus? What are we to actually look for? And I've given you some of those signs in previous messages. I told you, for example, that Jesus said they will be like the days of Noah, like the days of Lot. I've given you some Old Testament references to a cosmic sign, uh, the sun, moon, and stars, something happening that will darken them, found in the book of Joel, chapter 2, and the book of Isaiah, and other places. We went to the book of Malachi and looked at a sign of the return of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, Malachi 4, 5. So we've already done some homework on things that will surround the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've submitted to you that I believe there is one singular coming where everything will happen. I don't believe that there is going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. That's not my position. And I believe there's one singular second coming where the Lord will rescue his people. And at that point, you're going to have a resurrection and a rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. And then you're going to have wrath poured out. And the image of Noah going into the ark and then the flood coming and Lot and his family being pulled out of Sodom and the fire and brimstone coming is the image that we've been given by Jesus himself. And now Paul will add a layer to that, which we need to understand, of two specific additional signs to look for that will be around the coming of the Lord. In fact, it will precede the second coming, the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're in the title. It is the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Let's tackle the first five verses as we jump in now. 2 Thessalonians 2.1, we request, we implore you, brethren, uh, addressing once again the church with an entreaty, with regard to the coming. There's your subject matter. That's the Greek word parousia. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A, always has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Now we, re we request to you, brethren, with regard to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the two are uh, connected, are gathering together to him. So notice the subject matter right out of the gate. You have the coming of the Lord and the two are interlinked, are gathering together to him. You have an NIV, it says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers. So the subject is concerning the advent. We're, it's amazing to me, but we are on the heels of celebrating advent in the, at the end of November and into December, and Advent celebrates the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there is going to be a second Advent prophesied in the Bible, and it's going to be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the topic is right now. We've dealt with the topic in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, and here we have His coming and our gathering together with Him. The word for gathering together with him is a word called epi sunagage. <laughs> and it is the word for the gathering of God's people. And here it is the gathering of God's people to God's presence. And it has some connection to the blowing of a trumpet. When the trumpet would blow in the Old Testament, one of the major uses of a trumpet blast was to call the people of God to the presence of God. And there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed and we will gather together to him. We will meet the Lord in the air. Recently I heard a teacher say one of the reasons that that may be that we meet him in the air is that the earth is being judged with fire. So it is both being brought to the Lord in terms of being with him, but it is also escape from judgment. The Lord's going to remove his bride from the fire of his judgment. Aren't you glad? This is where it's really good to be on the winning team. And so he will bring us to his presence and then pour his wrath out. Very much like Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus put it this way with a cognate uh, word related to this. And he says... He will send his angels, Matthew 24, 31, with a great trumpet. And they, the angels, will gather together, epi sun ago, his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. The gathering together to our Lord. That's what's going to happen when he comes for those who are here. And the beautiful image here, the powerful image is the resurrection of the dead in Christ and a rapture pretty much simultaneously. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord, the Lord in the clouds, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. So this is a word of comfort. It's a word of hope. It's a word that we know the way the story is going to end, no matter what is going on in our crazy, divided, broken world. We have hope that our champion is coming. One writer has said that the concept of an eschatological gathering goes back to the Old Testament. If you're interested in taking notes on this, Isaiah 43, 4 through 7, Isaiah 52, 12, and 56, 8. And here's a psalm that uh, references this. Psalm 106, 47 says, Save us, O Lord our God, 
Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Psalm 106, 47. The idea of a, of a gathering or a regathering of Israel is also part of this picture. But in Revelation 7, it pictures every tribe, tongue, nation, and people gathered before the throne, giving thanks to God and being covered with his beautiful tabernacle. This is what is ahead. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be before the Lord, rejoicing in our salvation. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is the image that we have before us. By the way, the Greek word for the gathering here is only used in one other place, episunagage, and it's in Hebrews 10.25. Isn't that interesting? That we are not to forsake the assembling or the gathering together as is the habit of some, but we're to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. We're not to forsake the sunagage, the, the gathering of God's people. The verse that's been debated all over in the last seven months is the only other place where this word is used. And that's why some people say, well, maybe it doesn't mean the rapture. But the context is unmistakable. Because the ultimate gathering is not gathering to a building. It's gathering to our Lord. I want to see him. Amen. Amen. And apparently he wants me to be with him. That is amazing. And some of you think, does he really know who I am? (laughs) Yes. He does and he still chose you. Isn't that amazing? And to be gathered together with the elect from every generation of time to see people who have passed on, heroes of the faith, people that we have said goodbye to in this life will be there, will be with him forever. God's family gathered to the God who saved us. That's what this means. This is not just a theological exercise. This is just not, hey, I know some cool things about the last days in eschatology and I saw a movie and heard a Bible study. No, this is about coming back to the one who gave us life in the first place, the father of spirits, the redeemer of our souls, amen? The lover of our souls. We will see him face to face and he, wipe, he will wipe away every tear. From our eyes. Praise God. It's a good place for a loud amen. Praise the Lord. Now Paul says that's the subject and the reason for the writing is that you may not be quickly shaken, verse 2, from your composure or be disturbed. The Greek word here is to be frightened or alarmed either by three things, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. NIV, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Now something happened and the word got back to Paul, and let's not forget that this is a fairly young church in terms of their time in the Lord and their understanding of Scripture. And there are some of you that have been walking with the Lord for years and years, and these concepts are pretty familiar to you, and others of you, this is all brand new to you. But wherever you are on the spectrum, here's what happens 
with Day of the Lord, Second Coming type of teaching is that sometimes people are just simply misinformed. Or somebody says something that rocks their world. And something happened in the Thessalonian congregation. It could have been a prophecy, maybe by a church member or a visitor. And maybe in a meeting they said something like this. uh, I believe the Lord is saying we have entered into the day of the Lord. Or maybe some sort of report came or some forgery. Maybe this early Bible students that already there was a concern about forged letters in the name of apostles. We've heard some of this uh, as you study the letters of the New Testament and study manuscript evidence for the Bible. We know there were forgeries, and perhaps even this early, people were trying to write things in Paul's name or in Peter's name and saying, this is from the Lord, and this is what's happening. And they were deceiving and unsettling people. This is what false doctrine does, is it unsettles and even shipwrecks people's faith. Sometimes when someone comes out and sets a date and says this is what's going to happen and this is when it's going to happen and people get duped, they become, they become brokenhearted and there's many people who go out the back door of many movements disenfranchised, losing hope because they think, well, if these guys don't know what they're talking about, how, who can I trust? Who should I listen to? Paul says, I don't want you to be shaken or unsettled or disturbed in any way. He's going to give us these markers, but let me just give you a verse. This is Ephesians 4.14. It tells us that pastors and teachers should be equipping the body. And in Ephesians 4.14, it says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. One of the reasons that you need to know your Bible so that you don't get duped. If you hear a false teacher pontificating, waxing eloquent about some concept, you should compare it to the Bible so that you don't get duped, so that you're not misled, so that you're not misinformed about what the Bible has to say about these subjects. I don't want you to be shaken in mind, New King James, or troubled. That's not where Paul wants us. He doesn't want a bunch of Christians walking around in jumpiness or in worry. We're to have peace. In Mark 13, 7, Jesus, talking about the last days, says, do not be frightened. Don't be shaken in mind. Don't be constantly fretting about what you have heard. Someone could come and say, they've gotten an inspired utterance from the Lord, or they put it together. And we had a guy, he was part of a family radio uh, ministry. I think he oversaw it. He picked a date. What was it, at least some five years ago? And he picked October or September of this year. The Lord's going to return. Wrong again. At what point are we going to learn to stop doing this stuff? Right? To to say uh, emphatically and strongly what we do know and to be careful about what we don't know. And I'll tell you this. This passage is a tough passage. So this is where you're going to need your thinking caps a little bit, and we're going to take a little bit of Scripture with Scripture and look at the day of the Lord. What are the clear markers that will precede the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus? Here it is, verse 3. Let no one, I don't care who it is, in any way deceive you. Don't be duped. For it will not come, the day of the Lord is the context, unless what comes first? The apostasy 
New American Standard, you may have falling away, you may have rebellion. The apostasy comes first. The day of the Lord is not coming until the apostasy comes first. Greek word apostasia, classical meaning of the word in Italian is a pasta dish with tube-shaped pasta and red sauce. And a side of meatballs, a spicy meatball. No, just kidding. That is not what it means. <laughs> but I thought you might need a little bit of attempt at humor at this point. Now, what is this apostasy? Let me just say to you that for our friends on the pre-tribulation rapture side, and this even goes back to Darby and some of the ones who came up with a school of dispensationalism, that this idea of an apostasy, they saw the word as perhaps a departure in rapture. And uh, this is kind of like, it, you know, there, there's a system of belief, and so perhaps that's how we should take this word. Let me just say to you that this word does not mean a departure to rapture. In classical Greek, this meant a military or political rebellion. The word means a defection. Here's an example. Let's say that you were part of a military uh, team. You had signed up for the army or something, and you defected from a previously uh, signed commitment, if you will, or voice commitment. That's what the idea is. It's to defect. And if you look at commentators on this particular word and you dig it out in what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was completed about 250 B.C., so 200, 250 years before Christ. You can look at some verses where apostasia is used in the Old Testament. And scholars would say when you take those verses and look at them, they always have to do with the rebellion towards God and God's law. So the apostasia, and it's the, it's the uh, definite article, so it's something, some event that's going to happen, the apostasia is a defection from commitment to God, and I would walk that out by saying to God and his laws. Now perhaps we've gotten a little bit of a taste of this in the last couple of months as there's been chaos in our culture. And it even got so bad that they were burning Bibles in Portland or somewhere. And uh, we, some of us looked at that and we saw that and we saw some of the chaos on the streets and it got scary and it's still scary in some places. A rebellion, a defection. Some people say that the word, part of what you can take from the word is that it's a, it's a defection from law or the law of God, and so it's anarchy is the idea. It's a total rebellion. And in the biblical setting here, it has to do with the falling away from God. It is the rebellion. It is the apostasia. If you're interested, the uh, Septuagint has these ideas in Joshua 22.22, 22, 2 Chronicles 29.19, and you could read all of 2 Chronicles 33 to get the idea, but especially, um, I'm not sure I have the verse here, but anyway, 2 Chronicles 33, a defection from God and his law. Here's a good way to think about it. You read through the Old Testament, you see a king, he rises to the throne, and it says, this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, he encouraged the Asherah and the 
false places of worship up on the hilltops. And he did not honor the law of God. That was an evil king. A good king would honor God's law. He would smash down the idols in the land. A rebellion against God is ultimately against God, and his law is directly connected to him. So let me just make it contemporary for a second. Let's take our country. Let's look at God's law and how it's been honored in the last 50, 60 years in America. Let's talk about the redefinition of marriage. The redefinition of uh, gender. The killing of 60 million babies under the banner of it's my choice. See, it's happened here, folks. And a lot of people who have looked at the recent history have tracked it back to the booting out of God in the schools and prayer being eliminated. And I'll let you wrestle with what you think the origins of some of these things are. But ultimately now we have in many ways no less than spit in God's face. But yet we still want his blessings. We can finish speeches with God bless America while we are killing innocent children in the womb. How, how can that be? See, someone can make a claim with their lips, but your actions are going to define you. And this is a rebellion against God. And it's happened over and over and over again. Not just in the United States, it's happened in Israel. It's happened when they had the direct presence of God. They had the law of God written on tablets of stone. And they still broke the law. Why Moses is up getting the law, they're down the mountain breaking the law. What is it with us? But we are prone to wander and often prone to rebellion. The only other place in the New Testament where the word apostasia is used is in Acts 21, 21. Listen to it. They have been told about you, Paul's being addressed, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake apostasy of Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. The only other place apostasy is used in the New Testament is in Acts 21, 21, for a alleged forsaking of the law of God or the law of Moses. Now there's a cognate connection, a cognate verb that's very similar. That's the idea of the word cognate to this idea of apostasia. And I'm going to give you three verses and they're going to be familiar to you. Luke 8:13 in the parable of the sower or soils Jesus says. And those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear Receive the word with joy, and these having no firm root, they believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. There's the similar word. 1 Timothy 4.1, once again, the Spirit explicitly says, 1 Timothy 4.1, that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And then Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. And then verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called still today, lest any one of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The apostasy is a falling away. It is a defection from God and His law. 
And it is a sad reality, but this has been the story of humanity. This is when Satan entered into the garden and questioned God's word. Did God really say that you'll die if you eat the fruit? No, 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 no. He knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will be as gods. You'll become a god. You'll get a cave and your own planet. It'll be wonderful. Oh, really? And the fruit looked good to the eyes. It was able to make one wise. And she took a bite and gave it to her husband. What was he doing? We don't know. But he appeared to be at least in the vicinity there, probably watching football. We don't know for sure. And he took a bite and plunged humanity into really destruction. And you know who was behind that? It was one who was identified as a serpent who entered into the paradise and deceived our first parents. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul picks up this idea of deception. He says, I don't want you to be deceived from your faith as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. Now I bring this up because what we're leading to is part B of this idea of what will precede the day of the Lord. It will be a defection, an apostasia, and notice it's also in verse 3, the man of lawlessness or the man of sin will be revealed. He's called the son of perdition or the son of destruction. You are not going to have the day of the Lord until you have these two things. You're going to have an apostasy and a man of sin. Some, some people have called this apostasy and antichrist to use two A's. I'll let you wrestle with whether you think this is the antichrist here. But it's the apostasy and the man of sin, some versions say, is revealed. Who is this guy? Well, here's what we know about him. He opposes for and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, this is why uh, those who study eschatology have argued that you're not going to have the events of the last days until you have a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Because how could this man of lawlessness take a seat in the temple of God if there is no temple of God? Now some commentators, who I would respect, have argued that this is not a literal temple. This is this man trying to take leadership in the church or trying to deflect attention to him for worship. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3:16 and 6:19, it talks about the church or the individual believer being the temple of what? Of God or the Holy Spirit. So is it possible that we should understand this man of lawlessness when he takes his seat in the temple of God as trying to take over worship of the living God and that it's not a literal shrine or a physical building that is being talked about? I'll tell you this, I've wrestled with this and looked at a lot of different commentators and looked at the flow of the text. And I think an honest look at the text argues for a physical temple. For example, how do you think the first century receivers of this letter would have understood this? They probably would have understood this as the temple in Jerusalem. They probably would have understood this as the Greek word is naos uh, for temple, N-A-O-S. And it speaks of the 
uh, innermost part of the temple structure or the holy place or the holy of holies. Just a side note, in 40 AD, Caligula attempted to move a statue, I think it was either of himself or of Zeus, I think it might have been of Zeus, into the Holy of Holies in 40 AD. That's 10 years after the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And it was stopped at the last second. But the story goes that they were on their way to try to get into the innermost place where there's only one single piece of furniture there. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And somehow it got stopped. But this idea of a man going into this innermost holy of holies is one possible concept. You might, you might think that maybe it means that he's going to try to take a place of preeminence in the church or in the hearts of God's people. I'll let you once again wrestle with that. But I will say to you, because the apostasy is connected with the man of lawlessness, that he may, the man of lawlessness, may be the catalyst for this rebellion. And I don't have time to go into it this morning, but one place that we see this is in Revelation chapter 13. And in Revelation 13, we have two beasts that are introduced to us in, this, in the book. And we have the beast and the false prophet. And the beast, ultimately, because he has a wound that gets healed, and there's a lot of debate about what all this means. That's why I'm saying this, this is a more technical study this morning. But the world wonders after the beast. I'll tell you what, let's go there. Revelation chapter 13. I know you guys want to turn a little bit in your Bibles, right? Let's go there. Revelation 13. If you're having difficulty locating Revelation, we have a class for you. It's right before the concordance. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, Revelation 13, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Many scholars would say out of humanity having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous, blasphemous names. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, similes, they were like that. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, that is Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? This is a parody of what was said about the God of the Bible. Who is like you? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That's three and a half years was given to him. God is still sovereign. It's given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. And then there's more about this beast and what's going to happen. 
Let's, uh, we'll skip down to verse uh, 11. I saw another beast coming out of the earth. This is the false prophet. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, that believing to be the Antichrist, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him, given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. He provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. His number is 666. How many of you have ever bought food someplace and it was $6.66 and you're like, add some gum to that. Add a, add a candy bar to that. I can't, I can't pay that amount. That's, that's bad juju. That's bad. I wouldn't worry so much about that. <laughs> but here's what I would say. This is an interesting description of what's going to happen in the world. And it's going to be a person who rises to power who demands the worship of the world. And some of us, you know, over the years, we've, we've wondered, how could this happen? How could one person control all of this kind of stuff? Until, have you noticed just what's happening recently with technology? What's happening recently with how the power of one person can easily go worldwide? How quickly stores can run out of toilet paper and canned goods? How fickle people can be. How in a worldwide panic, and maybe we've just recently gotten a foretaste of what that will look like, chaos quickly ensues. And it's not hard for people to get very desperate for survival and do some very silly and destructive things. And so this is, this man of lawlessness, many connect him to what we know as the Antichrist. Now, I will tell you that the Antichrist, that name, is only really in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 4, and 2 John verse 7. So that as a title, we have to be a little bit careful that we don't all of a sudden connect dots and don't define what we mean by that. But I will tell you this, there are many good scholars who believe that's who we're dealing with. That ultimately there will be a single individual over multiple kingdoms who will have this kind of power and control. And with the way the world is and the world moving to a castless society and technology and, and the world being, becoming smaller and smaller, this becomes more and more uh, understandable how it could happen. He has the backing of the power of Satan. And you, you've noticed as we read through the verses that there's supernatural signs that happen. He's called the son of destruction. He's, that either means he's doomed to destruction 
or that he causes destruction or both. And the only person that I know of that's called the son of destruction other than this person in the Bible was Judas Iscariot. In John 13, 27, it says, After the morsel, Satan entered Judas. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, John 13, 27, do it quickly. This was the man doomed to destruction. Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for him had he never been born. And this man that will arise connected to the apostasy and the man of lawlessness will be doomed to destruction. And we're going to read in a few verses that he will be slain by the bright return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a false Christ. He's an imposter. But sadly, much of the world will go in this direction. I want to show you one more connection to this. It's all the way in the book of Daniel. Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New. Let's go there, Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you where some believe the idea of the man of sin comes. It's Daniel 7, uh, also known as the man of intrigue. Let's take a look. Daniel's getting these night visions. And he says, uh, this is verse 8 of Daniel 7. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, Daniel 7, 8. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots. Now, the, the historical setting of this is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are the, the, uh, the horns and the beasts, and they're connected together. So, notice, behold... This horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, some see the man of sin here, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like uh, white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands of thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the court sat, and the books were open. And I kept looking beyond, because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, this one that had the eyes of the man. I kept looking until the beast was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now you're going to see in 13 and 14 the coming of Jesus Christ. So notice the interconnectedness of what we've been studying. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, that is a description of Messiah, was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, Daniel was unsettled, as you could imagine, by the visions. 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings. He's getting now an explanation from the angel that will arise from the earth. The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. I desire to know the exact meaning 19 of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, trampled down 
the remainder with its feet. The meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, I want to know. And the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. And I kept looking at that horn, which was waging war with the saints, sadly, and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now, I can't go in depth on what I'd like to do here because we'd be here for about the next three hours and we'd pass peanuts around so you wouldn't get too hungry. But I think you can see the connecting verses here and how Daniel saw these images and Revelation paints this picture and how Paul has now given us a look at what this is going to look like. Jesus is going to slay this one, back to 2 Thessalonians, with the breath of his mouth, verse 8 of chapter 2, and the appearance of his coming. So we don't have to be frazzled. We don't have to be upset. We don't have to be freaked out. We have some things to look for. We have an apostasy, and we have a man of lawlessness that must be revealed prior to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is one second coming and not a rapture seven years or three and a half years before, then these are markers for you and I to know. Now, what does this mean? Well, some of you have heard the idea of the doctrine of imminency, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. What that means is that he could return at any moment. At any moment, there could be a rapture. If there is only a singular second coming, all associated with the day of the Lord, then there is is not an imminent return of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be at any moment, any time. These things have to happen first. Now, could you still be living anticipating the second coming like we could be in the season? Yes, You can still believe that we could possibly be in the season and live in the light of the second coming without believing in imminency. Everybody with me? Here's an example. How could these events, if there has to be a physical temple uh, in Israel uh, for these events to happen, how could they have happened before 1948 when Israel was not even in the land? How could they have happened before 1967 when Israel had no control over Jerusalem? So is imminency really the doctrine that we should be looking at when it comes to the last things? I would say no. I would say you should understand the signs of the times, but it is quite possible that imminency, as one writer put it, is a phantom doctrine. That is, it may not be that Jesus could just return right now, or he could have just returned in 1920, or he could have just returned in 1897, or he could have just returned at any moment in 1820 or 1740. You can go back as far as you want to go. You can go back to the first century. There's been a lot of people who have tried to pin the tail on the Antichrist, right? And in the early centuries of the church, if you read some of the church fathers, they tried to figure out who the Antichrist was. And they had their conjectures, and they tried to understand this passage, which was even difficult for them. And then as church history went on, the Reformers picked this up, and the Reformers said the Pope was the Antichrist. And the Catholics said that Luther and the Lutherans were the Antichrist. And then 
As time unfolded even more, people said Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. And then, you know, in a little earlier days, Mussolini or Hitler or Stalin were the Antichrist. Hey, let's be careful. Don't try to pin the tail on the Antichrist. But have your eyes open to what the Bible says. And don't be unsettled or shaken because the day of the Lord is not coming until we see these things come first. That's why in my eschatology, my belief about the last things, I don't get really frazzled about these things. And I don't use that, the idea of imminency. Imminency doesn't have to be motivation to me. I'll give you an example. I was in the supermarket and I met a wonderful lady who is strongly pre-trib. Long history, Calvary Chapel. She is a phenomenal evangelist. And she said, Pastor Michael, I heard you teach on the rapture, and I struggle with what you're saying, and I have to tell you, when I'm in the market or I'm on the street, I tell people, Jesus could come at any minute. You need to get saved. Jesus could come at any minute. You need to get saved. And I thought, that's awesome. But I said, you know what? That's wonderful, and I love your heart for evangelism, but let me just say, you could also share with people that their heart could stop at any second, and they should get saved. And don't you think that that's probably a stronger way to evangelize? You're a heartbeat away from eternity, my friend. James says you don't have tomorrow promised to you, so get saved because you don't know how much time you have. There could be the breaking of glass uh, in a car accident, and you're before your maker. This, the imminent return of Jesus does not have to be your motivation. Death can be it. <laughs> oh, God's people say, oh, bummer. No, it is a tactic in evangelism <laughs> because everybody knows they got a date with it. Now, they also realize that there's a teaching about the second coming. I was working for a company and I was witnessing to a guy and I, I shared with him all the time and I gave him a Bible tract. And I told him a little bit about the last days, and I was a younger Christian back in these days. I was saying, okay, so here's what it says, and here's what it says over here about this and that. And this guy would not give his life to Jesus, but he kept that little gospel tract on his desk. And about once a week, he would say to me, so, Michael, if this happens and that happens, then this and then, and then I'll, I'll make sure I get saved, right? And I said, no, get saved now, <laughs> And it's like he kept the gospel tract on his desk as though it were a lucky charm. If I keep this here, then I remember what you said. Hey, if you can't live for Christ now, do you think you're going to be able to live for him in days that are challenging beyond what some of us could even imagine? Get saved now. Now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Amen? Don't put it off. Now, this one is going to go and declare his divinity. He's going to go into the temple of God, declaring that he is God. He wants no uh, competition. There's a guy in uh, the history of Israel named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Syrian leader. He was doing damage in the 170s B.C. And he was called Antiochus God manifests. That's what epiphanies means. He claimed to be God. He slaughtered a pig in the temple of God. And Jesus, when he's dealing with the last days in Matthew 24, 15, says these words. When you see 
the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And then Matthew says, let the reader understand. Here's a loose paraphrase. Get out of town. <laughs> Get out of the house. <laughs> when you see this abomination that causes desolation, standing where it doesn't belong, demanding worship, Jesus says that's the time that will spark and signal the great tribulation, the great trouble. Much more could be said. We have teaching on this in the book of Revelation and uh, Daniel that is on our website and on our app. I wish I could do more, but here's the last verse. We'll, we'll, these ideas kind of build one on top of another. We'll talk about the restrainer, who that might be. We'll talk about the second coming more as we move to a second message in chapter 2. But look at the final verse. Verse 5, 2 Thessalonians 2 says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Don't you remember I often spoke of this? I'm amazed uh, sometimes as a teacher, you'll teach something and you think that people got it the first time you taught it in 1997. What do you mean? I, I taught you guys that, right? But remember, Paul was only with this church perhaps a couple of weeks. And it interests me that in that few weeks with the Thessalonian congregation, he was already teaching about the last days. And they were brand new Christians. So that tells me teaching about the last days is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. And you might be asking, well, Pastor Michael, what do I do with this kind of message? You stay on the alert. You stay on storm watch. But ultimately, here's what you do. You occupy until your Lord comes. He may not come in our lifetime. And if he doesn't, then I want to do as much as I can to make sure as many people as possible come to know him. Amen? I've already got my motivation. He so loved me that he gave himself. I've already got my passion for the gospel, for people to know who he is, for people to be saved from their sin, to be born again to a living hope. And if Jesus comes in our lifetime, we'll buckle our seatbelts and we'll look for our redemption because our champion is coming. But if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we're going to go to be with him. And either way, we will be with him forever. Praise God. So the, the important thing is that we know him. Father, we thank you for your living word. This is a, an intriguing study about the last things and these two signs that Paul lays out. We have an apostasy and a man of lawlessness. And we've looked at some passages that perhaps even just scratch the surface, but Lord, you're, you're teaching us things that you inspired by your Holy Spirit, so you want us to know them. And I think one of the most important things you'd have us to know is that we belong to you, and you are going to finally wrap up these times, and you will judge the world in righteousness, and you will gather your people to yourself that where you are there, we may be also. And in that famous passage where you assured the disciples, you said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it weren't true, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus, you went on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one is going to that place. No one's going to end up in my Father's house except through me. 
You said, if we've seen you, we've seen the Father. Thank you that you've revealed the Father and the heart of God to us, Lord. Thank you that even in a broken world where sometimes it's hard to be a Christian and it's troubling, we have a hope that is the anchor of our souls. Keep your heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you're watching us via live stream right now, just keep your heart bowed, keep your head bowed. If you are not sure, if you were to leave this place tonight, if you were to go into eternity, if you are saved, if you're not sure, just make sure. It's a gift. It's by grace, through faith. You receive the gift by faith. Something like this, something this simple. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are Messiah, Savior, God, Lord, and King. I repent of my sin. I ask you to be my Lord and my Savior. I ask you to let me be born again to a living hope. I want to follow you all the days of my life. Change me, Lord. If you're a prodigal and the Lord's calling you back to himself and you need to repent and come home, do that right now. Do that in these closing moments. And if you're a saint... Maybe you've been a bit unsettled. Maybe life's been turbulent. Maybe you've been fearful. I pray that some of these calming words that Paul shared would bring you calm, that God is in control, that his word is true, and that he will sum up the times as Jesus comes for his bride. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us as orphans. You will come to us. Thank you that we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our future redemption. We love you. We worship you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.